My love, there's only you in my life. The only thing that's bright. My first love, your every breath that I take, your every step I make. And I, I want to share all my love with you. No one else will do. For those of you who know the song, uh, you may have been transported back to memories, maybe fond memories as you're chasing after love, maybe even disappointed in in the love. <laughs> that, by the way, was number one on the Billboard's top love songs. Here's another one. If I should stay... I would only be in your way. So I'll go, but I know I'll think of you every step of the way. And I will always love you. Pastor Rick has volunteered to give us a rendition after service. (laughs) But with all the talk of love, I'm sure you guys have love songs in your head, you know. With all the talk of love, we got to ask the question, what is it? How do we define it? Where is the perfect example of it? Is it a burning thing? And it makes a fiery ring bound by wild desire? Or is it, as Olaf in Frozen says, putting others' needs before your own? I mean, what is it? If we are going to go on loving, we got to know what it is, right? Because after all, the Beatles tell us, they insist on telling us, Love is all you need. Well, believe it or not, if you have been searching for love, true love, whether you have been disappointed in love or whether you think you know what love is and you think you have it, our passage this morning brings us face to face with what God says is love. He is our creator, the only one who sustains us even now. He's perfect in every way. And so, you know, his definition might be important to you. Uh, so if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn there. First John chapter four. We've been walking through the book of first John, an excellent book, as John helpfully clarifies for us what true Christianity is. And here he clarifies for us what true love is, according to God's definition, the ultimate definition. This is what it says. First John chapter four, verses seven to twenty one. I'll go ahead and read there. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be, to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one, else, no one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us of his spirit. And we have seen and testified that the father has sent his son to be the savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the the son of God, God abides in him and he in God. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love and whoever abides in love abides in God and God abides in him. By this is love perfected with us so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment. Because as he is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his own brother, whom he has seen, cannot love God, whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. The main point of today's passage, as it applies to Christians, the main point is true Christians must love their fellow Christians. 
True Christians must love their fellow Christians. So if you're writing, writing notes, that's the main point of today. And in fact, Christians are commanded to love one another. So if we could leave Lionel Richie alone for a second, uh, it's helpful for us to understand the passage in light of the context that he was writing to. This letter here was written to a young Christian community, in some ways very much like us as we are replanting the church. Um, and they were experiencing some, some difficulty in their, in their church life. So a group had arisen from their own midst and was teaching false things about Christianity. Basically trying to take all the definitions of Christianity, whether it be Christ or Christian love or morality or God's commands, and then redefining things, repackaging it for the, uh, the then present culture. They were trying to make it more palatable because certain things just simply weren't palatable. So he writes them, encouraging them, stay the path. Unlike those folks that just left. Those folks who are planting a false church. He says, stay the course. He says, true Christians believe that Jesus is the Son of God come in the flesh. He says, true Christians obey God's commands. And then lastly, he says, and this is what our text is about this morning, true Christians love their brothers. So that's the main thrust of the passage. True Christians love their brothers. That's, uh, that's point number one, if you're taking notes. Christians love one another. The emphasis is clear there in the very first verse. Look there in, chapter, in, in uh, verse 7. He says, Beloved, let us love one another. And time and time again in the book, he, he clarifies what it means to love one another. And so he does the same thing. He's picking it back up, picking up this theme again and teaching us that love is an evidence of salvation. Christian love is an evidence of salvation. So he says, look, you true brothers in Christ, love one another. Let us go on loving. But you would figure that after the command, he would give method, right? He would tell us how exactly we are to love. But that's not what he does. He gets at not method, but nature. He goes after the nature of love. And that's interesting, isn't it? He says, look, hold on. Before we go on loving we got to understand what the love is. And it's like he plasters it all over the wall for us to walk into the entryway and see and examine what exactly is this love that is supposed to bind us and that we're supposed to walk in. It's exactly what it does there in verses 7 to 8. Go ahead and look there. I'll read that again. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. So that, that's, he's going after nature. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God because, here's the reason, this is nature, God is love. So he says love is from God. So the very things that we're supposed to live in and walk in, he says, look, the origins of it is not from this world, it's from the heavens. It is from God, it has its origins and its source in God himself. And then he goes on to say in verse 8 that God is love. Now, he's not saying that the substance, the very stuff of God is love, whatever that is. I mean, many people think that love is a mere emotion or something like that. He's not saying that God is emotion or the substance, his being is love. That's not what he's saying. He's saying here what he means is that the very things that God does, he does in such a way with all of himself, which is always love. He's, the very things he does is all love. Everything he is, he is Love. He is gracious love. He is merciful love. He is holy love. He is just love. He is patient love. He is always wise and in all of his wisdom. He is always love. And on and on and on. Love is such a part of what he is and what he does that he is said just to be love. And we're constantly, as God's creatures, constantly reminded of the fact that earthly love, the stuff of this world, is not what's ultimate. But in fact, the stuff of the world are pointers to what is ultimate. That is God's love. Um, so let me ask you a question in terms of pointers, how we realize the stuff of the world points ultimately to God. I mean, has earthly love ever betrayed you or so-called love, earthly love? Has it ever betrayed you? Has it ever lied to you? Has it ever failed to be there for you? Failed to understand you? 
Has earthly love ever abused its privileges? Ever took advantage of you? Has earthly love that you know ever forgotten something? That's how strong it is. Has earthly love ever done something to tear apart a family? Earthly love ever make you fear? There's a reason for all those things, right? Earthly love is not all there is, no matter what the Beatles might say. I mean, if love had its origin in the world, it would be as solid as the world, as reliable as the world, which (laughs) is not very reliable. It would change just like the shifting seasons and the shifting shadows and things like that. Um, And you know that, that, you know, the way earthly love takes its toil upon you. You guys know this when you aren't trying to deny it. You know the toll that it takes on you emotionally. Failed love. Think family, think loved one, think uh, authority who's supposed to be loving. You know the toll that it takes on you emotionally, physically. You know even the consequences of a fallen sexual love. Your disappointment and your hardness and your inability to love Your fear, your confusion, it screams for another love, doesn't it? In the midst of that, I mean, some of you guys may be in the midst of that right now, a failed earthly love. Even there, your disappointment screams for another worldly love. A world, a, a love that scripture says all of the failed loves point to. That is a love that is from God. God who is said to be love itself, the definition of love. I mean, God's love is the standard of love for the Christian. Of course, in no way is our love perfect. You just hang around with us enough and you'll know that very clearly. Our love is not perfect as Christians. We still sin, but fundamentally Christian love is nevertheless from God. has its origins, its source in God in the heavenlies. But God calls us to be as he is. And to love with his love, a holy love as we love one another. A selfless love, a just love. Okay, so if we're looking at verses 7 and 8, you may respond and say, okay, you know, I get it. He's talking about nature. He's saying that love is of God. It's from God. God is love. But what does it actually look like? Does it look like our bulletin this morning? Pretty roses? It's interesting. You just, you, you take this understanding of Christian love and you compare it to our passage. This pales in comparison to what our passage holds forward this morning, as to what God, God's love is. I don't think ever flowers are ever equated with God's love in Scripture, but I could be wrong. Rose of Sharon. Rose of Sharon, thank you. There you go, I'm rebuked. Um, this brings us to our second point. God's love displayed. God's love displayed. So we got the command... To love, and then we have God's love displayed. This is verses 9 to 11. I'll go ahead and read that. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. So what brings us great hope is that God's love has been made known. I mean, imagine if the love of God, if he is the supreme being, the ultimate being, perfect in every way. Imagine if he himself never revealed his love to us. I mean, what kind of, how exactly would we go about loving? What would be the standard of love? Would it really be, would it really lie on on the weight of our own responsibility to determine what a good love is? But thank God that in verse 9 it says, in this, so he's clarifying, in this, he's saying, look, you young Christians that have just seen those false teachers leave your church, in this, the love of God was made manifest, revealed. In this, it just begs us to, to read on and read on, right? Whatever this is, that's where you have divine perfection, the divine standard that is revealed, divulged, made clear to us. And this is just like God, isn't it? If we know God. There he goes again, making himself known. Showing us more of himself. Right? There's no covering up here. There's no hiding to protect himself, but only a giving, entrusting, revealing, 
uncovering. You know, sometimes I feel like, uh, and I know that we oftentimes live in such a way, we believe in such a way where we think that God's love is only up there. That he hasn't really made himself known, or even if he has, he can't really be known. You can't fundamentally know his character. You can't have a relationship with him. And many religions might teach something like that. But that is not so according to the word of God. That is not so according to the word of God. Here he makes his love manifest. Do you notice where he makes his love manifest? Look, the answer is in scripture there. Among us. He makes it known among us. <laughs> that is people. People can know this divine standard of this beautiful being that is God. The Bible says that God makes his love known to us in many different ways. So God is said to love in many different ways. It's complicated, his love is. Um, and so one way God makes his love known is through the, the, the structures that he sets up in creation. That's a legitimate way he loves. Um, here you, you see this as he creates, but then also as he preserves creation. So think about it this way. Imagine for, for whatever reason, um, I'll just give an example. In Dubai, where I used to work, there were many people who couldn't find jobs in their home countries. You know, they're seriously living in a lot of poverty. And so the man, the husband, goes to a different place, Dubai, where he can get a job. And he sends back a lot of money. But even in him going and sending back money and wiring those things, those are structures in which his wife and his family can know his love, right? So he receives the paycheck and he wires it home. The wife receives the money. She, therefore, can buy food for her children money to take care of her kids, and he does so faithfully, decade after decade after decade. That's a legitimate way of showing love, right? Those are the structures that the man, that the husband puts in place. Structures, for example, that God puts in place, he causes the sun to rise on the wicked and the righteous. The very fact that we have sun today, that's an evidence, a legitimate way that God reveals his love to us. Uh, Another one, he sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. So those are legitimate ways that he uh, expresses his love and a legitimate way that we can experience his love. But imagine this, that guy who moves to Dubai to the Middle East because his family in India are living in poverty. uh, How much more would it be in terms of a, a genuine expression of his love if he were to say, you know what, there's plenty of jobs there now in India. I'm going to move back home. Not only to preserve those structures, but to actually live with my wife and my children. The the stuff, the daily life that she experiences, I'm going to go ahead and experience as well. I'm going to bear her burden as she takes care of the children, as she takes care of family members. Here the husband, right, he enters into the situation of of his wife because he loves her. So it is with God. The pinnacle of God's love is not in the making and preserving of structures for his creation. No, the the pinnacle of God's love is what he does as he enters into the structures for his creation. It's an entering into. God has made his, his love manifest among us in that he sent his son. How does God show his perfect divine love? How is his love made manifest among us? The scripture says God sent his son, the son of God. And for what reason? Go ahead and look there in verse 10. In this is love. So this is a definite statement here. He says, you, you look for love. He says, you look no further. This is a definite statement. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to do what? To be the propitiation for our sins. This also is a theme that John picks up, and he reminds us again. So go ahead and turn there to 1 John chapter 2. Look there in verse 1. Remember, he's clarifying for these Christians that, uh, you know, there's been a great earthquake, a fault line has just divided this church. Their friends, their so-called friends have just left. They're abandoning true Christianity. And he says, my little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin like them. But if anyone does sin, know this. We have an advocate with the father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins. And not only for ours, but also for the sins for the whole world. And then turn back to 
chapter 4, verse 10, he is the propitiation for our sins. Some of your Bibles might translate it sacrifice of atonement. What, what he's clarifying here is that God created man to be in a relationship with him. But since they had rebelled, they had gone their own way. And they said, you know, basically, I don't give a rip about what you say, God. I'm going to live my own way. And so they, in sinning against God, they earned for themselves just condemnation. Ultimately, condemnation in hell, the Bible says. And for that, there is eternal punishment. And God's wrath, because he is just and because he actually cares about sin... He says, I actually need to punish sin and sinners. The great news is that where we created the problem, as I said before, God provides the solution. And so he gives of himself and he sends his divine son, who is God, to die on the cross for sins, bearing the sin that we deserved, bearing the wrath that we deserved, so that we might be free. And then God is satisfied in doing that. He is satisfied. That's propitiation. That's satisfaction language. God's wrath is satisfied against sinners. And so because it is satisfied, he then can love his people with a great love. That's propitiation. Satisfaction of God's wrath that therefore makes the face of God towards his people favorable. That's sacrifice of atonement. So there are a couple conclusions here that we are left with in the face of verse 10. First, any understanding of God's love that does not include, highlight, and prioritize the sending of the divine Son is an inadequate definition of, of love. Any definition of love that doesn't include the sending of the Son, the divine Son, is not an adequate definition of love. I mean, is it a greater expression of God's love to remain distant? To simply create the structures and then remain far off? Or is it a greater expression of God's love as he draws near to his people? So logically we understand that scripturally. It's very clear. Any definition, any definition of love must include the sending of the divine son. The second conclusion, any understanding of God's love that fails to define it as God's, uh, that, that God saved sinners from his wrath because of his grace, because of his mercy, is also an inadequate definition of love. I'll repeat that. Any understanding of God's love that fails to define it as God saving sinners from his wrath because he is loving, gracious, merciful, is inadequate. Scripture is clear. Logically, we understand this. Is it a greater love to give yourself to those you only find lovely? Right? To love people just like yourself? <clears throat> is that like the highlight of love? I love only people like myself. Or is it a greater expression of God's love to give yourself over and over and over again to even those who have offended you? I mean, in marriage, what, how, how does that work? Is it a greater expression of love to love your wife even when she sins against you? Or is it a greater expression of love to toss her to the side and pursue only those who are perfect? God's definition of love includes entering into our situation by God's grace and giving his son to save the ones who have offended him. Dies on the cross. He takes his, their sin upon himself. He bears the wrath that they deserved. He stands in their place as a substitute. Um, the reason why I bring these things up, these, these conclusions here, is because it was important to that church. There were people who were abandoning the very plan of salvation that God had laid out before all time. And people continue to do just this. They're bent on doing just this, removing these definitions, these requirements of divine love, and making it sort of this fluffy niceness type of love. You know, and they get offended by the talk of sin. Some of you guys might um, have known what this is like before you were believers. You know, they, they look at this idea of sin, that we have offended God, and they say, okay, you know, the, let's just get rid of the whole Jesus came to die on the cross for our sins and satisfy God's wrath bit. Let's just chuck that. Instead, they say, you know, Jesus is a beautiful moral example, and that's why he is here. Or they say Jesus shows us how to unlock the hidden potential within. And by saying those things, they remove exactly the stuff that God has put in in verse 10. 
He says, in this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son, not ultimately to be an example, not ultimately to unlock the hidden potential within the human, but to be the propitiation for our sins. So is is Jesus ultimately a moral example? No, although he certainly is. Is love defined by Jesus becoming a moral example for us to watch and follow ultimately? The scripture says, no, God's grand intent in sending his son wasn't merely that the world would watch, but that the world would be one. God's grand intent in sending his son wasn't merely that the world would watch, as if he is just merely a a, a moral example, but that the world would be one. And so you just think of the language of the gospel, right? You've got language like uh, redemption. You got language of rescue from sin and slavery. You got forgiveness of sin. You got mercy that's not giving us what we deserve. And you got grace giving us what we don't deserve. All those things point so clearly to the fact that Jesus Christ is the sacrifice of atonement and that, that he is God's love for sinners. All right, as we um, seek to apply this to ourselves, David, can you turn on the AC? Thanks. The love of God given to sinners in Christ is the ultimate love. And the only love that saves. That, at the end of the day, is the only love that saves. This, God's love is the only, true, the only truly good love. The only truly righteous love. And man tastes slivers of these things all the time. And, and, and I want to encourage us all to just go further than tasting the slivers, but go back to the original pie. That God is clearly saying, look, you want to know my love. Let me give you plenty of examples for you. And even if you come from some of the worst of earthly families, and if you want to know what that looks like, you know, you might talk to Pastor Rick or something like that, where people clearly have experienced a twisted and fallen understanding of love. But even in the worst of families, sometimes... We understand these slivers, right? So, so commitment, for example. Commitment is good, right? And it points us ultimately to the commitment of Christ to his father as he accomplished the father's will. And also a commitment to loving his people faithfully. We think of sacrifice, for example. There, there it points to the, the ultimate pie of God giving up his own son. Though he's worthy of all position, of all glory, Yet he chooses to sacrifice. The Lord chooses to sacrifice his position of all glory and honor. And he steps down from his throne and enters into our situation. He he manifests his love for us. Christ sacrificed himself on the cross. And the world has sometimes good definitions of love and where they are good. When they are good, which is certainly not all the time. When they are good, they all point to Jesus Christ. So Frozen, for example, you know, we've been singing that in our house all day, every day. Um, You know, it's interesting there, uh, you know, a human doesn't give it the definition of love. A snowman, make-believe character gives the definition of love. It's interesting, isn't it? They need something outside of human experience to tell them what true love is. Uh, and, And the snowman says that love is, in almost in a passing, fleeting comment, it's putting others' needs above your own. Right? Where do you think that came from? Philippians 2 says, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is not in Dr. Phil, it's not in Oprah, he says, which is in yours in Christ Jesus who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Now make no mistake, Disney here is not evangelizing us from the Christian standpoint. Uh, But nevertheless, where they get things right, they point to the ultimate, that is Jesus god's love for sinners so so my my guess friends if you're visiting with us and you know yourself not to be a believer my guess is that you appreciate these these generally good things about love sacrifice 
commitment, putting other people's needs above your own. The wonderful thing is that uh, you too can know this great and wonderful love because God has manifested it to the world for you to see and for you to know and for you to experience. And that brings us to the next point. God's love owned. Keep in mind, he's encouraging the Christians to stay their course. He reminds them, look, uh, true Christians are to love their brothers. He says, you look at God's love displayed. Look at the nature of love before we move on to the method. He says, remember what it is. It is of God and God is love. But then he says, you Christians own it again and again and again. You already have owned it, but he says, you own it. You live in that love. That's the nature of true Christianity. This is in 13 to 16. Uh, and keep in mind here that, that John needs to calm their fears. Right? The friends of leaving. They feel betrayed. They're saying, look, you guys don't believe in the true Jesus Christ. Jesus isn't really fully God and fully man. That's what the false teachers say. So John does what many of us would do. Right? Imagine you're in the relationship, whether it be father to child or <clears throat> spouse or boyfriend, girlfriend, whatever, children. You know, what do we do if someone in a relationship is feeling insecure? What do you do to, to correct them and encourage them? Now, you could, as some of us might be prone to do, you could slap them around. Like, what are you thinking? You know, you're an idiot. Don't you know I love you? Showing ourselves to be not loving at all. Or you could come alongside of them and remind them about all the truths of your undying love for them. Remind them about what you have done. You give them evidences of your undying love. And that's exactly what John does here. He is a, a man sent of God to remind them of God's love for them and that they've already owned it. But then he encourages them to go on and own it. Now, we look at 13 to 16, and I'm going to summarize. Go ahead and look at it, and I'm going to summarize each verse because I think it, it gives clarity here. Logically, he's tying together all these different themes that he's already brought up in his letter. And he's bringing them together so that we might go on loving. Verse 13, he basically says, beloved, that is those loved of God. He says, we know we have fellowship with God. That's confidence right there. We know it, guys. Because he's given us his very own spirit. Verse 14, and beloved, the spirit is working in us. Don't you know? Because where the spirit is working, uh, the spirit works in such a way where Jesus is glorified. And we have seen and testify to the very true gospel, the true Jesus. And then verse 15, he says, And whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, fully God and fully man, he has fellowship with God. You are the true believers, he says, not them. He says, we have fellowship with God. They don't. Verse 16, he says, So beloved, given these very things, therefore we have come to know and we have confidence, we have assurance that God loves us. Yes, you. God loves you. You see there, he wants us to own this love. Not generally, but personally. He wants us to own this love personally. L listen, as I uh, summarize the text, and you see how, how personal God's love is. Okay, so you guys should be thinking, do I personally understand God's love for me? He says, this is love. God loved us. And sent his son to die for us. He gives his spirit to us. And so we know and we believe the love God has for us. That's personal here. Not just sort of a group mentality. Although it certainly includes a group. You turn over to Galatians 2.20. Which is back a few books. Or I should say towards the front a few books. Galatians 2.20, I mean, you read how personal this is for Paul. He says, it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God. Now get this. Who loved me and gave himself for me. So it's almost as if as he gazes upon the cross to see Christ's crucifixion, he knows that it is also his sins that nailed Christ to the cross. He loved me and gave himself for me. So if you're visiting with us and you know yourself not to be a believer, or if you are a Christian and you struggle to understand God's love for you, this is an extravagant love manifested for you 
for those who have repented and believed. God sends his son on a rescue mission for you. Jesus takes on flesh for you. Jesus resists the devil in order that he might maintain his righteousness so that he might then give it away to those who repent and believe to sinners like you. Jesus was utterly faithful to his mission for you. In the garden, it says, before he was arrested, he offered up prayers to God for you. And he, the king, was mocked and killed for you. And he bore the sins for you, for those who repent and believe. He was raised from the dead to earn you new life. And his ministry continues. So if you are a sheep, you are kept and preserved by this great shepherd, protected until he comes to gather his great bride. So if you know yourself not to follow Jesus... What will you do with this personal love manifested to you, revealed to you? This love is for every sinner that acknowledges his or her need. Now, you can spurn the love of God and say, okay, I understand that this, according to the Bible, that this is the divine standard and say, I don't want it. But why would you? Why would you want to reject the divine standard of love where where he then helps us learn to love everyone else, even in the midst of difficulty and persecution and bitterness and resentment that many of us are all too familiar with and a very good reason to accept this love that has been manifested is because jesus himself says that he comes and he judges those who reject him he is a good king after all who loves his ways which are perfect and loves his people who repent and believe So the question for you is, why would you not accept God's love displayed in Christ Jesus on the cross? Repent and believe. Believe in this great love that God has revealed to us in Christ on the cross. So encouraging them to stay on the path, John explains what God's love is. He reminds them that God's love can be owned. And then he returns to what kicked off our passage. Let us love one another. And this is, our, this is our final point here. But he uses a different language as he encourages us to love one another. He says, God's love is to be perfected. This is verses 17 to 21. God's love perfected. It's mentioned twice in our section, so look there in verse 12. He says, no one has ever seen God. But if we love one another, God's, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. Verse 17, he says again, by this is love perfected with us. So here he's not saying that God's love is somehow lacking something as if God himself is lacking. No, his character informs the ways in which he loves. So if he is perfect, his love, therefore, is perfect. Uh, So it's not that he's lacking, but get this. It's his purpose before time, before anything began. It's his purpose and intention and will, his desire that his love not end with you. If you're a Christian, his intention is not that his love would end in you, but that you would receive it and then give it. So logically, God gives of himself. He exhausts himself of his life, literally, so that you would receive love. And we then are to turn around after receiving that love, after owning that love, to exhaust it once again. Our lives for other people's. That's what he means by completion or perfection. His love is completed. His intentions for his love is completed as we love other people, particularly as Christians love uh, those who are born again in Jesus Christ. That is, those who, those, uh, Christians loving the sibling, their own siblings, those children of God. So God purposes his love, uh, God's purposes of his love are supposed to be brought to fruition with two, for two aims, two reasons, two ultimate goals. Number one, it's so we'd have confidence on the day of judgment. That's in verse seven. So we'd have confidence in the day of judgment. Um, and of course, you know, if we are loving like Jesus loves, it reveals that we actually know him. If we aren't loving the way Jesus loves, then clearly we don't know him. And if that's the case, then we are supposed to fear. Uh, so you can, it says there here uh, that perfect love casts out fear. That's what he's talking about there. Those who actually know God's love for them, they don't fear in the judgment because they are fully enraptured with God just as God loves them. And uh, John says similarly there, encouraging them. John, 1 John 2, 28, dear children, continue in him 
so that when he appears, we may be confident and unashamed before him at his coming. In other words, when, when God comes to gather us, we actually show that, yeah, we actually get you. We actually understand your ways and your wills and your purposes, and we are in fellowship with you. We understand it. So there's no fear. Uh, second, in love's perfection, we display God's character. So go back to verse 12. This is what he's getting at when he says, no one has ever seen God. All of a sudden he talks about how no one's ever seen God. The reason why he does that is because we display God's character in loving. No one has ever seen God if we, pause, if we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. So no one has ever seen God, but as we dwell in his love, as we live in it, as we comprehend it and give it, the church displays something of God's character to the world. This is the intended function. It's like a father who desires to pass on the legacy of a family name, and so he <clears throat> spends time training up the child, raising up the child, passing on his ways and his purposes. And then when the child grows up and embraces it, he lives the way that the father has taught him. And the father says of his children, he says, you get it. You are born of me. You are my children. And all the curious onlookers who may not have that family structure or that that father for a fan for uh, the father they say that guy's a christian he has god for his father and jesus christ as his lord and savior so the question then we should ask ourselves is if what do we make of a child who bears no resemblance to the father what do we make of the child who bears no resemblance to the father verse 20 go ahead and look there if anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. So, it's really clear. For he who does not love his own brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. It doesn't make any sense to John. It doesn't make any sense to Jesus for a supposed Christian to say, I love God. I just don't care about all the other people that Jesus died for and bled for. This is all about me here. I don't really care about my family. And it shows really that you don't really care about the father because the father cares for his family. Love for one another displays the very character of God. John 13, 34 and 35 says, A new command I give to you, love one another as I have loved you. So you must love one another. By this, that is love, all men will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. So friends, just as God has committed to loving us, so he is committed to seeing us love. I mean, there is no option. This is no optional add-on for the Christian life. This is fundamental to the Christian life because it's fundamental to God. This is why people in history, Andrew Fuller being one of them, calls love, this kind of archaic language, but he calls it the plant of paradise. And we know of its fruit and we eat of its fruit. Christians are supposed to, at least. So every church, First Baptist Church, every church here in the SGV, every church in the world that preaches the true gospel, that is a true church, uh, we're supposed to hold down the fort of God-like love until he returns. Perhaps a better analogy is that we are to maintain a consistent God-like love to the world until he returns. And in so doing, we represent his character. And this is a tall order if, if we think about it, right? I mean, those of us who are parents know, or even if you've had parents or have been entrusted to take care of other people, you know what this is like. The father who goes away for a trip, he encourages maybe his children to look after one another. Of course, the olders have responsibility for the younger. But yet the younger children still play a part in loving one another. Everybody's doing their role. And the father desires that the children be about the father's business. And so when he's away and he knows that the older is feeding the younger, preparing stuff for them, and he knows the youngers are also looking after the rest by doing their fair share, cleaning, feeding, loving, supporting, right? The father is pleased with that. And when the father returns, he's going to be pleased with his children doing these things. It brings him joy to find his children being about his business. So the question is for you. Is this your sentiment about this family? Is that your sentiment of the family? That you are holding down the fort of God's love for us 50 people who are here? Or if you're visiting with us and maybe you're a member of another church, 
that church that, that you attend to, is that your sentiment as you attend to that church and love that church? You're holding down the fort of God's love for these brothers and sisters so that they might know the love of Christ more and more and more. Are you completing God's love towards you by loving others around you? That's what God's intention is, remember. That we be looking after one another in love, helping each other to know and to experience the love of God, God himself. So in effort to uh, apply this love to us as a particular body, First Baptist Church, let me give you a couple encouragements. Um, first, in effort to, to continue perfecting the love of God, that it not just stop with you as if you were a dam, but that you would open the floodgates of God's love to other people. Invite someone over to your house for dinner so you can serve them. Invite someone over to your house so you can serve them. And if you're a student, saying something like, I live with my parents or I'm a student and I only have a dorm room is not really an excuse. How about buying food with some friends and inviting yourself over to somebody else's house, right? There's plenty of things that you could do. And you could just call them and say, hey, you know, me and my friends, we want to buy you food. It'd be a wiener snitcher. I'm sure people don't really care. Um... And then if you aren't a student and maybe you have a place, what college student doesn't love free food? So do that. It's a way that you practically, in terms of the body of Christ, love one another here. Another thing, um, you know, if you know that someone is not doing well, like you hear about their health, uh, give them a call. Ask them how they're doing. Tell them specifically how you're praying for them. And then maybe while you're on the phone, pray with them. So Tyler, you know, a couple weeks ago, uh, he called Aurora to see how she was doing. You know, if you put Tyler and Aurora, Tyler, can you raise your hand? Um, You know, if you put Tyler and Aurora next to each other, they look vastly different from each other. Aurora's a woman. He's a man. They come from different cultures. They speak their mother tongues as far as I remember. Someone might correct me here. But those might be different as well. They're of vastly different generations. There's multiple generations in there. And here you have Tyler, uh, and there are some of us here too who do the same, uh, who is taking the initiative to actually call someone who's different from himself, a different culture from himself, uh, and seeing how are you doing here. That's a practical way that you can give yourself uh, to perfecting God's love amongst us here. Um, Another thing, write encouraging notes to one another. Now this might seem really lame, um, but just go ahead and do it, right? You see Paul here, he's writing encouraging notes to one another, right? So there we have divine example. Uh, if you've benefited from somebody in the church, if you've benefited from anybody in the church, maybe you're a small group leader, maybe from one of the preachers, maybe from someone who greets you with a, ha- with a happy smile every Sunday, maybe somebody who makes the coffee, uh, etc. Maybe someone who cleans up after you. Let them know how you are praying for them and how you're encouraged by them. In so doing, you are caring for the family and you're seeing that we are nurtured in the faith. So think of some way right now, okay? Think of some practical way in which you can be loving one another. For Christ's sake. That includes just, you know, hearing other people's testimony. I know that I heard of a group when they went out to uh, get some drinks. I don't believe those were alcoholic drinks. Those are just hanging out and they're getting drinks. Um... And I think what it was is that the group had said, okay, every time we hang out, let's hear somebody's testimony to hear about how God has worked in that person's life. And they went about doing this thing. And this is wonderful to hear again how God has worked in his grace and in his mercy to bring sinners to salvation. So think of something and do it this week. And when I see you next week, and when we all see each other next week, we can go ahead and ask each other. So uh, how's it been encouraging one another? So here, to conclude, John here, he wants us to go on loving. It's not what the false teachers did. So he encourages us, look, you you go on loving, but you understand the nature of love as you go about the method. And then you say, and and then he says, you go on and you own that love again and again and again, and you be confident in it. That's God's love owned. And then he says, you go on in love and perfect the love of God. And that's the challenge that we have today. We are rooted in the gospel, we own the gospel, and then we're perfecting the love of the gospel in that we are passing it on to other people. 
He says, let us love one another. We might not be facing the doctrinal issues that that church did, or even necessarily the social issues that that church did, the original readers did, but we certainly face our own situations where our faith could be shaken. When we might question if what we're doing is worth it, maybe we want to throw in the towel of Christianity. Whether we are, whether what we are believing is true, maybe we face the ugliness of our own sin night after night after night. Regardless of the reason, God's encouragement is the same to his people. He says, you church, you love one another. And you do that by keeping the gospel of Jesus Christ, God's great love for us in Christ in front of your eyes. And so may, may we continue on the path that God has laid out for us. And then may we encourage others to do the same. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, Lord, we praise you for being a gracious and merciful God. And we see your grace and your mercy in that you manifest yourself among us. That you manifest these divine qualities amongst us. And so, Lord, we thank you that we aren't lost, but that we know the truth. It's evident. It's plain. You've divulged yourself. So, Lord, we thank you that through Christ on the cross, by dying for sinners, we know your love truly and we can own it. Father, we pray that we as a church, we would be so changed by the gospel that we would go on living in the very love that you give us. Of course, we don't die for sins, but yet we can exhaust ourselves for the spiritual good of other people, the people that you've put around us. So, Father, we pray that we would heed Scripture's calls, your calls upon us, that we might encourage, that we might help, even when the case may require, that we might rebuke with truth, and that we would come alongside one each of us one another and to be holding each other's hands as we walk and even drag at times one another towards the cross again and again and again so lord we pray that you truly would have in front of us the ways in which you've manifested your love upon us that is through your son in your name we pray amen